If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Father, again, we want to express to you, Lord, our thankfulness to you. As we gather here to worship you and to honor you, we come, Lord, out of respect for who you are, to proclaim to ourselves and to others that you are God, that you are gracious, that you are kind, that you are good. We come also, Father, knowing that we are dependent upon you for all things, always in need of your help and your assistance. Because, Father, we are aware that not only are we are limited, but that sin has affected every single aspect of our lives. And so thus, Lord, we depend upon you for all things. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless as we open your word and as we read and as we study. Father, as we have gathered here today and as we pray together and as we have sung hymns and songs to uh, proclaim praises to your name, Father, we've even... Uh, given uh, our tithes and our offerings to you as we desire to, to support the work that you've asked us to, to be involved in. And we ask, Lord, that you bless that, that you bless all that we've done here today as we've sought to honor you. And then, Father, again, as we open your word, we ask, Lord, for your blessing. We pray that you would grant us understanding. And again, a very strong desire, Father, to have your word greatly, not just challenge us, but to change us. So that, Father, we, be, we may become more like your son Christ in every way. We thank you. And we do ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So looking back at verse 1, let me reread that to you from the uh, New Revised Standard Version. It reads this way, Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. Again, remember that Paul is making that statement primarily, number one, because his character, his ministry has come under attack. And so he's been, in a way, defending himself, but doing so in such a way where the focus is not on him, where he's saying, look at me, I'm great. These guys say they're great, but I'm greater than they are. I'm more important, so listen to me. What he's been doing is really showing by comparison that these individuals who are coming against him and trying to uh, move in on the church to you know, have priority to, to, to be involved in leadership, to have authority, you know, they talk about, again, their credentials and all these kinds of things. He continually points back to the fact that he's just a servant and the message is central and the message is great and the message is from God. 
So as he talks about his ministry, he wants them to know that he's not discouraged by all of this. And the reason why he's not discouraged is because he understands that when it comes to the ministry that he's involved in, it is because of God's mercy. It's not because of Paul's intellect. It's not because of Paul's creativity. This is all really because of God. And he's aligning himself with God, what God is doing. That is what you and I are to do. Remember that this passage, these passages that we go through here in Corinthians have been preserved for us by God. So as we look at what Paul is doing, we do need to ask ourselves, what does this have to do with me? What am I going to glean from this that would be helpful or advantageous for me in my growth as a Christian? Again, Paul is one who we see as being one we should imitate. We see the grace of God working in his life. And so we are to kind of dissect or, or spend some time observing the way he's handling this, what he's saying, even at times what he's not saying, the way he's saying it, and then apply those principles that we see to what God has called us to do. Because again, as believers, remember that every single one of us is called to ministry. Now, not everyone's called to pastor, not everyone's called to be a full-time missionary, but all of us are to live our lives serving others for the sake of Christ. And serving others for the sake of Christ normally involves, to one degree or another, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now, we may not always be the one who is verbally proclaiming the gospel of Christ in one sense. We may be working maybe in the background to allow that to take place more freely. But we all know, even on an individual basis, one-on-one, all of us do or should have some type of communication with non-believers where we are verbalizing the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, we could ask ourselves, why do we have this ministry or whatever God has called us to? As Paul says, it is again a gift of God's mercy. So again, Paul is presenting us uh, a great example in crediting the mercy of God for the effectiveness of his ministry. So Paul's not downplaying the good things that have happened as a result of what he's involved in. But he is careful to make sure they understand why it's been effective, why it's been producing good things. Again, it's not because of Paul and his cleverness. Paul was a unique individual. Paul was clever. Paul was very intelligent. Paul was driven. But God was using those things for God's advantage, using him his way, in the way that he sees fit, Paul, again, was one who had submitted himself to God in that way. Again, what we may recognize is that we, we know that we have been saved by grace, but again, we live the life of the Christian in really the rotten flesh uh, that we possess. It is a flesh that loves adulation. It loves praise. It loves recognition. We want to take credit for a job well done. Uh, and so here, when we take inventory on whether the ministry of the gospel that you are involved in, we want to make sure that whatever ministry we are involved in, that it de- it's not being replaced by my ministry. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong for you to identify whatever ministry that you're in as being your ministry. That's okay. But you don't want it to be where the, whatever ministry you're involved in is about you. And that's the difference. Anything we do by grace is a reflection or should be a reflection of God's infinite, exhaustible mercy. None of us knows the depths of the evil of our flesh, which really colors even the motivations for ministry. 
And so we do have to continue to scrutinize, no matter who we are. That includes every pastor, as well as every Sunday school teacher, every missionary, every individual. Uh, again, it kind of goes back to that basic element that you should never allow yourself to reside in the place where you trust yourself. The flesh is evil, and it can rear its ugly head. Again, that doesn't mean that you have to be negative about yourself. You don't walk around all day long saying, I'm just a worm and I'm nothing. It's not that. It's just understanding the perspective that the Bible wants us to have. That's simply what it is. In the same way that we know that you know, it's, it's important, even though we don't always do it, and, we, and most of us aren't very consistent at it, we know we should eat at least fairly healthy. Why do we do that? Ah, because we know our bodies are weak and they need the good nutrients. And it gets really hard in December, I don't know about you, but man, I, I like to eat that junk all the time. It's good. You know, people aren't very, you know, people aren't very helpful when you're on diets. You know, because nobody's coming over and saying, look, I picked some fresh broccoli for you for Christmas. <laughs> right? It's other things. You know, maybe there is a reason why sometimes chocolate cake is called devil's food. But anyway, the idea is, is that, you know, we want to do those things and they taste good. But we know that in the end, we, what we need. So it's, it's not that we're walking all day long saying, oh, I'm out of shape and I'm pathetic. We just understand that we, we need to get some good nutrients in our body. That's kind of the idea. The word for ministry that's used here in 2 Corinthians is diak, uh, um, uh, diakonia. There you go. I looked it up and listened to several different pronunciations. Diakonia. And it means really rendering assistance or help by performing certain duties. Um, the duties that's involved in ministry, the word that's used there, often included mundane activities such as waiting on tables, or caring for household needs. In other words, it's a word that's used to not only just talk about service in general, but more often activities that don't really have any dignity to them. In the cultural context, in the Greek culture, diakonia was not a dignified term. The service associated with this Greek word involved dependence, submission, constraints of time and freedom. It caused the Greeks to regard ministry as basically degrading and dishonorable. Service for the public was good, it was honored, but voluntarily giving of yourself in service of your fellow man was alien to Greek thought. To the Greek, mundane service was not considered to be the proper purpose for a man's life. In Judaism, in Judaism they had no philosophy of ministry that was involving diakonia. In other words, the, Jewish adopt, the, the Jews adopted a philosophy of service that was very similar to the Greeks. If service was rendered at all, it was done as an act of social obligation or as an act to those uh, more worthy. A superior would never stoop to become a servant. Though Judaism during the time of Jesus knew and practiced social responsibilities, example to the poor, this was done mainly by the giving of alms or giving money, not by service. The giving of money was okay, but... To, to, in a sense, humble yourself to serve others that just was not done. It was not viewed even as being important. So that's another aspect, I think, that's important for us to remember as to the uniqueness of Christianity as it appeared on the scene in the early church. What we normally think about and what we're kind of accustomed to, even in our country when it comes to service, and the idea of serving others and doing so humbly, 
we've kind of been around that and heard that in general for most of our lives. But in the culture that, was, that this letter was written, that didn't go on. That was not anyone's mindset. You know, how, how you were viewed by others was, in one sense, maybe even more important than it is today, even though it's still held in too high esteem in the lives of many people. And so people just weren't going to humble themselves. Sometimes, uh, I remember there were certain jobs. I remember when I, you know, I used to manage Pizza Hut, and there was a time when you know, I, I, we were kind of slow, and I told the cook that he needed to go check the bathrooms and clean the bathrooms. He said, what? I said, the bathrooms need to be checked. He goes, I don't do that. I go, everybody does that here. I do that. You need to go do that. He says, I, I wasn't hired for that. I go, well, you were. I said, however, it's, listen, it's your choice. If you don't want to do it, it's fine. This will be your last day of work here, but I'm fine with that. I mean, that's your choice. And he said, well, well, then, then I quit. I go, okay. So he quit, and I went and cleaned the bathrooms. Not a big deal. But in his mind, that was beneath him. And there are many individuals who see certain things as being beneath them. It comes across in different ways. Not everybody always verbalizes, but we, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we check ourselves, so to speak, to make sure that's not our attitude, especially when it comes to the work of Christ and the work within the church. I mean, at least if you're going to be a phony, you know, be a good one. And you, know, you don't want to be humble outside, but be humble here. And, you know, so if you have to clean the bathroom or help somebody out, do that. But the idea is that we don't want to have this, this attitude within us. Christ did set the example. Remember that when he uh, washed the feet of the disciples, that was not just some big show he put on because he knew that story would be preserved in the Bible. That's not what he was doing. It was a low service that needed to be done. He did want to show them by example that he was willing to humble himself to do what a task that was considered very low and, and beneath him and beneath even his status at that time. You remember he was viewed as being a great teacher. He had a big following. You know, his disciples still didn't quite understand why he had come and, you know, understand about his death and, and, and all those things that were looming, you know, in the, in the days to follow. But Christ was doing that out of, out of a genuineness of his character of who he was. Because remember, it began with Jesus coming as a man. Jesus coming as a man was, in a sense, it was demeaning. He did lower himself. Even though we're created in the image of God, that image is marred by sin. Christ laid aside his glory. In other words, the, the, where, where, when, when Christ, his, his presence in heaven, who he is would be immediately recognized by his glory. So when he became a human being, when that took place, that glory, in a sense, was set aside. He didn't walk around glowing or with a halo over his head. People did not recognize who he was based on his appearance. Some would begin to recognize who he was based on his character, based on what he said, based on the way that he treated people. And they came to understand who God was through him, same way that we recognize the Father through Christ. But he laid aside his glory. There's, this, in, in, there's a lot of apocrypha-type books, um, you know, books that are not included in the Bible, and there's always these arguments, people saying that there's books been excluded from the Bible. Nothing's been excluded. Uh, but, th but there's a, a collection of writings called The Lost Books of Eden. They're interesting. Um, 
But there's a story in there about, Je a supposed story about Jesus. And in this story, you know, I think some of you heard me say this before, he's, he's walking down a very narrow path, and there's an old man coming the other way. And of course, because Jesus is in the flesh, the old man doesn't recognize who he is. And so as they pass each other on this narrow uh, path, the old man bumps into Jesus fairly hard. And he, it's an accident. And according to the story, Jesus becomes indignant and, and stops and yells at the man and says, don't you know who I am? Of course, the old man has no clue who he is. And then Jesus basically zaps him. Okay, that would be out of character for what we know in the gospel about Jesus. He didn't go around doing that. That's why we know this story is not true. It would be outside the parameters of what we see in the scripture. But the idea that Christ would do that is appalling to us. So this idea then, again, about serving and this, and this term that's used here by Paul is, is, a, is in one sense a uniquely Christian um, word, an idea that we have embraced because of Christ, because of what he's done. It is a, a ministry of mercy because we have received mercy. The word that's used there in the Greek is aleo, which means not only feeling uh, bad for someone and for their, for their misfortunes where you have sympathy, but it also means that you have an active desire to remove those miseries. Then he says we do not lose heart. When he says we do not lose heart, strictly speaking, that means to act or behave badly in some circumstance. It can mean to give into evil. But basically the idea here is of being weary or becoming tired of doing something to either lose courage or to slacken your labor or your exertion because of the weariness that's caused by prolonged effort. It can picture someone who's become faint or faint-hearted or despondent in the face of trial or difficulty. So Paul's communicating to them that this is not what's happening with him. He is not losing heart in this way. Um, and so uh, there's a, a one minister, uh, I'm going to quote one minister who was talking about this. He said, Paul was deterred by no difficulties. He was embarrassed by no opposition. He was uh, driven from his purpose by no persecution. And his strength did not fail under any trims. The consciousness of being entrusted with such a ministry animated him. And the mercy and grace of God sustained him. So we would say that Paul was thick-skinned. He was tough. He was not going to be easily uh, moved off the path of what he was trying to accomplish. Remember that what he was trying to accomplish was really to communicate the gospel of Christ to as many people as possible. That's what he's doing. Whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's to a Jewish audience, a Gentile audience, even though it's primary Gentile, he was not going to be discouraged because how others talked about him, how others treated him. But he wants to make sure that they also understand that, he, that, that what he's doing and the way he's doing it is, once again, clearly different from the way these false teachers are that are trying to move into the church here in Corinth. Verse 2, he says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul's methodology is revealed here. There's a few things that Paul says that he personally refused to use or do in his own ministry. Number one, he was not going to use disgraceful or shameful methods. He was not going to use any underhanded means. So he was not trying to be shrewd or cunning. He wasn't being crafty. 
There was no fraud. There was no deceptive tactics that he used. Um, basically, uh, he was trying to, uh, he, he was not trying to use any and all means necessary uh, to realize an end. He was going to do it open and honestly. He kind of the idea that all of us are, are to possess and have when we, when we speak about the gospel. That's why it's always really, in a sense, offensive. And at least to the next point, when we try to make the gospel more palatable to people. It's always a good idea to make the gospel clear and to try to communicate it as best we can. But we don't need to change it so that they will like it more. Right? There are some individuals who really believe this. This is not a new idea. It's an old idea. But for them, there's too much blood in the gospel. This idea of Jesus, all this suffering and this, you know, this whole crucifixion thing. So we want to kind of, people, there are those who want to kind of downplay that and, and, and really focus on the other aspects of things that Jesus did. Yeah, that, that's not a good idea. We don't want to do that because that kind of really messes everything up when it comes to the message of the gospel. We need to trust the gospel. The gospel, the way that it's presented in the scripture, is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. Not, the, not with the alterations that we make to it. And that's why Paul says there in verse 2 that there's no tampering or really of watering down of God's message. He doesn't adulterate it. He doesn't mix it with human traditions. It's the pure word of God. And so we want to make sure that we, that we just never do that. Whether we're talking to our kids, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends, it doesn't matter what their religion is, we're not trying to be offensive on purpose, but we we want to make sure that we're always careful to make sure that the Word of God is clear and that it is pure, that we've not mixed in our traditions uh, with that. That's what he means when he says, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So the idea is that we do want to make sure that we become uh, familiar with the Word of God by our studies, so that we can always, what, rightly divide it. Because the assumption there is that it can be wrongly divided. It can be wrongly understood. And we want to make sure that we don't do that. We want to make sure that, that we're not trying just to, to prove some point that, we're, you know, that we think is important. Just teach what's there. Understand what is there. And, and, and realize that traditions are okay, but traditions are not necessarily the scripture. Like most of the time that they're not. doesn't mean they're bad. Not at all. A lot of traditions we have. You know, with it, uh, I believe that the Bible makes it clear that believers are to meet on the first day of the week. We gather as believers to worship God. That day has meaning for us because Christ rose again on the first day of the week. And so that, that's right for us to do that. Once you get beyond that, you know, it just pretty much, you know, if you want, if you want to meet on Wednesday night, you can. There's no command to do that. You want to meet on Sunday night or you want to meet on Saturday night. You can. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that commands that. So we want to make sure that, we, that we're not, you know, we don't start imposing things on people that it's not in the Bible. There's plenty there for us to do and to follow without doing that. John MacArthur said this. He emphasized the importance, uh, and he was speaking really to pastors and those who teach the Bible, um, that they needed to constantly strive to derive the right message from the passage. So he said this, don't proof text your bias or opinions by making the Bible say what you already know you want it to say. Like the guy who said, I've already got a sermon, I just have to find a verse for it. Uh, he said that's having a preconceived idea and then getting some verses to support it. Remember one time there was a, a man in our church and he came to me, he was very, he, he was upset, he was very disappointed. He said I ruined his day. Um, 
And that was, you know, there's that passage in Chronicles that says, if my people were called by my name, humble themselves and pray. And I basically explained, it's got nothing to do with America, and explained what the verse really means. And he said, that, that was my favorite verse, and you just destroyed it. I said, you mean with proper understanding? He said, well, you know what I mean. I said, well, kind of, but not really. Right? And the idea, you know, just like when, you know, let's say we have a, we, we've called a special prayer meeting. We we're going to have a special prayer meeting on January 15th. And we're disappointed in the number of people who come. The most common thing in our country is for someone to quote the verse where two or three are gathered in my name. Well, that's okay, but it's got nothing to do with prayer meeting. Nothing to do with prayer meeting at all. It's dealing with church discipline is what it's dealing with. And, of course, there's the, you know, I'm sure I'm not the first guy to think this. My very first thought is when someone brings up that verse, so what happens if you're alone? Is God not there? Because when I read the Bible, he is there. So we have to be careful with that. We, are, we begin to imply the wrong thing. So we need to use the, we need to use the Bible correctly. You know, I, I've said before, and I've had this discussion with others about, we sometimes really come down hard on those who are much more charismatic because they, they do take a great number of scriptures out of context. And we see some of the heresy that comes out of that. But it's just as wrong to take the Bible out of context to prove a point that might be good. We want to make sure we use the scripture correctly, not to manipulate someone for any reason, even to make them behave better. Don't manipulate the Bible to do that. That's just a wrong use of that. Warren Risby cautions all of us who handle the word of truth, all of us, which I, which I believe would be all believers, we need to strive to rightly divide it. He says here, we must never divorce one part of scripture from another. We must always compare spiritual things to spiritual. We can prove almost anything by the Bible, if we isolate texts from the context and turn them into a pretext. You can prove anything by the Bible provided you twist the scriptures out of context and reject the witness, maybe, of your own conscience. The Bible is a book of literature and it must be interpreted according to the fundamental rules of interpretation. If people treated other books the way they treat the Bible, they would never learn anything. Most heresies are the perversion of some fundamental doctrine of the Bible. False teachers take verses out of context twist the scriptures, and manufacture doctrines that are contrary to the word of God. So that's a warning for all of us, not just preachers and teachers, maybe primarily them because uh, of their position and their teaching in public, but all of us need to make sure that we're doing that. But then notice what Paul gets into in verse 3. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, right, we go back to that word veil, remember that when he first uses that word, Again, that's not like a sheer, lacy thing you can see through. It's more like a very thick curtain. You can't see. You, you, there's no understanding. No light is penetrating it. So he understands that even though his ministry is open and clear, and he's, and he's commending himself by telling people to examine it, he says, but there's this idea out there that there are those who still aren't getting it. And he knows that. He says, so even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. So... He's been speaking of the tremendous care that he uses in seeking to make the truth of God clear to all men by precept and by practice. But if the gospel is veiled or if it's hidden to some, it's not God's fault. And Paul wants uh, it to be, doesn't want it to be his fault either, either. So he writes these words. He's aware that there are those who simply cannot seem to take it in. Who are they? It's those that are perishing. Why are they blinded? The answer is in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
there are many, there's probably a good group of passages in the Bible that can be disturbing. This would be one of them. Because we know that we, we want to give and explain the gospel. Paul's telling us that their eyes are veiled. The, the non-believer, he can't, he's not going to get it. And on top of that, the God of this world is the one who has blinded them. In other words, what we see is the powerful reality of spiritual blindness. Satan is the one who's been granted temporary authority over this fallen world system. That's what the Bible teaches. It is a truth that is taught in the devil's temptation of Christ, where he offers the Lord all the kingdoms of the world. Luke chapter 4. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, or handed over to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, Jesus doesn't deny Satan's claim over all the kingdoms. He knows that he's going to inherit them one day. It's a process where he follows the will of God. But nonetheless, we see here the statement that, that Satan makes. In fact, Jesus himself refers to Satan as a ruler. John 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the word rulers there, or principalities, uh, is a word which means first in rank. So in the spiritual world, first over all spiritual forces of wickedness. John 14, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. And then John 16, where it says, and when he comes, he will convict the world, that's the Holy Spirit, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the fate of Satan is so sure that here Jesus uses the past tense to describe the future judgment of Satan. Where Christ triumphed on the cross once and for all over the God of this world. Now when it comes to spiritual blindness, I want to read to you a short section from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of, Bible the of Biblical Theology. It says this, Scripture often employs the imagery of blindness to describe the spiritual condition of persons who are either unable or unwilling to perceive divine revelation. The things of God are perceived not by observation and inquiry, but by revelation and illumination. It is the Lord who gives sight to the blind. The New Testament reveals that believers are subject to spiritual blindness. Peter deems those who fail increasingly to exhibit diligence in pursuit of spiritual virtue as blind or nearsighted. The exalted Lord of the church views a lukewarm but haughty Laodicean church as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Spiritual blindness then refers in some instances to the inability of unbelievers to comprehend spiritual truth, specifically failure to recognize the true identity of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. It is vital, therefore, to conduct all Christian witness in dependence on the Holy Spirit, who works to counteract the, the cataracts of Satan and to reveal the truth of God. But spiritual blindness can also affect believers who fail to perceive their true spiritual condition. To avoid the plague of spiritual blindness and escape the condemnation of leading others into spiritual ruin, 
Believers must be quick to appropriate and obey the word of God. And so again, spiritual blindness is a major thing. That's why, again, it reveals our dependence upon God, ourselves as believers as we read and study the Bible, but also then as we pray for those who don't know Christ, even the ones that we are sharing the gospel with, even our own children, that we may take a great deal of time to explain the gospel so they understand it. Remember, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. They are spiritually dead. It is not that your children walk around doing evil all the time, but remember, you've never had to teach them how to do wrong. We have to teach them how to do right. And we want them to understand the gospel. So we pray for them. We ask God to bless what we say to them. We ask God to help them understand what we're talking about. We ask God to heal them of their blindness so they will what? See, understand, embrace, and believe in the gospel. In verses 5 and 6, Paul then says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me just stop there for a moment. I know some people have done this with their children or grandchildren, they mean well, but you should not do this. And I don't think anyone here does, but you never know. I've heard individuals say this to their grandchild. You want to make grandma proud? You need to go forward in church today. It's not about grandma. It's not about making grandma proud. It's about them understanding who Christ is. Understanding that they need to be saved. They can understand that. They can. And they can believe. And so as Paul says here again, he's not proclaiming himself, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So given the fact that you and I are not capable of saving anyone, should not, and that we should not be seeking the praise or the attention of men. Not everyone who opens the Bible and starts talking is preaching Christ Jesus as Lord. There are those who are well-intentioned, who are actually preaching themselves instead of Jesus. If the focus is on funny stories or the touching life experiences of the preacher, he may be preaching himself. It doesn't mean it's wrong to use yourself as an illustration, but that is not the key or central thing. It's just to illustrate the more important point, which is coming from Scripture. One individual said who teaches preachers says people love it when the preacher preaches himself. It is revealing. It can seem intimate. It is often entertaining. It is also tempting for the preacher because he sees how people respond when he focuses the message on himself. But the bottom line is that the preacher himself can't bring you to God and save your eternal soul. Only Jesus can. And then in an old commentary, it reads this way. Paul here compares the conversion of a sinner to the entrance of light at the dawn of creation. This is very beautiful. In the first creation, God commanded the light to shine. But in the new creation, God himself shines into our hearts. How much more personal this is. The events in the early part of Genesis 1 are a picture of what takes place in the new creation. God originally created man as an innocent being. But sin came in, and with it came gross darkness. As the gospel is preached, the Spirit of God moves in the heart of a person, just as he moved on the face of the deep after the original creation. Then God shines into the heart of this person, showing him that he is a guilty sinner and needs a Savior. The material creation in Genesis began with light, and so also does the spiritual creation. God shines in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, and then spiritual life begins. 
And so again, remember, as, as we look at these things, Paul is emphasizing the right things. It is the message. It is the gospel. He knows that he is the messenger, but he's only the messenger. He doesn't make it about himself. He's applied it to himself. He even talks about what the gospel has done to him or changed him. He may even use illustrations about what God has done or maybe to illuminate what the scripture means. But it always comes back to that. It's not about making you and I happy. It's about you and I getting a pat on the back because we were, we were used by God to help somebody grow or to help them to come to Christ. If you get encouraged that way, that's great. But we don't go seeking those things. We need to be tough-skinned. People are going to misrepresent who you are, what you say. Some people aren't going to like you because of what you say. Stick with the Bible. People won't like you, just so you know that. Just start out with that. It's going to happen. God the Holy Spirit can toughen us up because we are in awe of his glory because of what he's done for us. And we know that those who may say these things, whether they say out of ignorance or misunderstanding or whatever the case may happen to be, maybe they're jealous of you. And you may be thinking, well, I've got nothing that anybody would be jealous of. Well, you may be surprised. But the bottom line is they may want to discredit you because they want to discredit what we believe in. Man, mankind has done that for years. So we need to be stubborn. We need to stick with the gospel. Continue to point to Christ. Continue to submit to Christ yourself. Asking God to bless, really, at times, our feeble attempts to explain the gospel. And that pleases the Lord. And it pleases the Lord to bless our efforts and to do his work in the hearts and lives of others. And you will receive great joy. You will have great contentment. You will have a great love of life and of other people because you are witnessing firsthand what God is doing in the hearts and lives of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and mercy. Father, we know that as we think about it, to share the gospel or to explain the gospel is really the most important thing on the planet. And you've asked us to do that, all of us. That's an incredible responsibility. What a great joy and responsibility it is, Father, for us to do that. And Father, we ask that we would take that responsibility seriously. That, Father, we would strive to do that even better. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, or help to restrain, I guess I should say, in us, our own tendency to seek recognition, to seek praise, even if it's small or in our minds, somehow we think it's deserved. Help us, Father, to be happy with whatever encouragement comes our way. Help us to focus on you and be in awe of who you are. Because, Father, that is satisfying. And that will perhaps appease and lessen this desire that we have to muddle things up. We thank you, Father, for those who share the gospel with us. We know, Lord, that, that we have seen it. Maybe we've experienced it. Others who have shared the gospel and they've had ulterior motives. Well, we can't change them and we can't change that. But we can within ourselves. And so we ask, Lord, you help us to humble ourselves so that, Father, we may never be an obstacle to anyone ever coming to know Christ especially, Father, those that we love the most, those in our family. Thank you, Father, again for being so patient with us. We do pray that you would give us the strength 
and the desire to imitate Paul in this way. Help us, Father, to be a little tougher, but because we have a great love for you and for others. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.